You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 182 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I, Valerie, I'm excited. You're excited? Tell me why you're excited. I'm excited because, how's this? Um, uh, To my, you know, surprise and great joy, my US publisher, Kane Miller Books, has created Mm -hmm. a book trailer for the Mapmaker Chronicles. Oh, my God. I know. It popped up in my Facebook feed and I was just so, like it was just like, and there's like a sea shanty behind it and there's like images of endless oceans and there's, you know, Quinn's map. And it was it. such a treat, honestly. I was just like, I was beside myself with joy. I will put the link in the show notes yes. um, if anybody would like to have a look at it because it's very, very cute and very fun and just such a lovely you know, I haven't never had a book trailer before, so it's a bit of a it's a bit of a um, you know, bit of a thrill for me. Yes, what that's I very exciting. Oh my it goodness! Is exciting. I know. Wow, so you that's can see okay. why I'm excited. Yeah, I can understand why you're excited. Did you? So it was a surprise to you. It was a surprise. Yes, it oh. was. There's a whole lot of stuff that goes on with publishing companies that you just don't, you know, really know about until it suddenly happens. And that was just one of the things that that was suddenly happening because I, I get sort of emails from the publicity team and from different people over there um, just saying, oh, we've got a lot of stuff going on and blah, blah, blah. And you sort of think, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know, <laughs> yes. and go about your business. Um, and then suddenly something like that pops up and, and uh, you know, within a couple of hours of being online it had been shared off their Facebook page like a hundred times and yeah I was yeah so you know I'm hoping that lots and lots of people will see it and will be excited about the series because obviously that's what we're looking for absolutely oh good well that is good news yes so that's why I'm excited what about you Valerie what are you doing goodness me what am I doing I'm just doing a bit of everything I feel like I've uh had quite a disjointed couple of weeks because of the office the the great office flood of 2017 that we Mm -hmm. had and I Mm. feel like only now I'm coming back I've got I'm I'm a bit more centered I've got my to-do list I've uh I'm finally able to power through it as opposed to wonder oh when I need to get the IT man to come or when I need to sort out all of those books that you know, some of which got wet and and that kind of stuff. So I mm-hmm. um, feel life's slowly returned to normal, like proper oh, normal. Oh, hooray. Yes, hooray. Oh, hooray. We, we still do need to wait for the handyman to come, but that's okay. We, we, can, we can move on anyway. Oh, okay. So, good. Well, as long as we can move on, like moving yes. on is the key, right, to the whole exactly. thing. Yeah, good. Okay, good. Now, I understand we have we're, – we're welcoming Leanne or Leanne Morris – to yes, 
the we writing are. world. <laughs> we are. So I'm just going to give a little shout out here to, Le- I think it's Leanne Morris. It could be Leanne Morris. And if it is, I, I apologize for getting it wrong. Um, and I just want to say thank you so much because uh, Leanne sent me a, a beautiful message, the kind of message that totally is just, you know, makes my day. I, honestly, like if you are thinking good things about a writer or you or someone that's, that's done something that's made a difference to you, you know what, reach out and tell them because it really does make a massive difference to a person's day. So I got this beautiful, beautiful email to say that she had just discovered us. She'd found the podcast and having listened to the podcast, had gone looking for my website, had signed up to my newsletter and had sort of then spent quite some time going through all my blog archives because, as you know, I have like a thousand million blogging articles on there about writing and the world of writing and publishing and all of those sorts of things and just, Mm. you know, wrote me a, a, a note to say how much she how much she loved it all. Um, she's she's just finished the first draft of a middle grade chapter book, so she's well and truly on the way. She has completed that first draft, and I would just like to say well done and congratulations on that. And now mm. she's looking at the next steps, you know, and she was feeling a bit overwhelmed about what to do next, and she's now saying that she feels like she's found her tribe. And I would just say, like an, at that point, I then took to Twitter and sent out a big message to our podcast community because I think mm. a lot of the, of the joy of what happens with our podcast podcast, you know, is, is because of, of the people who listen to us and the fact that, that yes. you know, they talk, talk to each other, you know, on, on online, on social media and, you know, join in on the jokes and all of those sorts <laughs> of things, share my love for Valerie's word of the week. And I just feel like, <laughs> I just feel like so much of what what is is great about this podcast comes from our community. So definitely, just, honestly, like I was just having myself a moment and I would just like to say um, thank you to Leanne for setting me off on that moment and thank mm. you so much to our podcast community for being such an awesome bunch of people. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so thrilled to hear that you feel like you've found your tribe, Leanne. So welcome. Yeah. <laughs> yes, welcome. Hi. <laughs> All right, so shall we move on to other news in the world of writing and publishing this week? Let us do that. Well, um, I think it's see. me. Is it me or is it you? It's you. You have a link. It's all about me. Let's, let's just about make you. this entire show about me. No, yes. let's not. Let us talk about Natasha Lester because, yes. as we know, Natasha is a presenter at the Australian Writers' Centre and a best-selling author and just an all-round very cool chick because yes. she's another person who – um, she really, you know, engages with the writing community on all sorts of levels. And one of the things she does is writes fantastic blog posts about her process and how she does things and sort of like allowing aspiring authors to see exactly, you know, how she writes her books and how she does her research and what she's doing. Um, and so she put up a post uh, recently called The Redrafting Process, plus exactly how I use that colourful chart. <laughs> and it was because she put a picture up on Facebook of a chart that she likes to use at the end of her second draft. Um, and I saw the picture and I kind of smiled to myself because, you know, it's it's fully colour-coded, it's all lines, it's kind of – it's very, you know – responsible and grown up is yeah. all I can say. It's very chart. Natasha. It's very Natasha. Um, but you know what? It's also a fantastic idea and it's something that I, you know, I looked at it and I thought, you know what? That is actually something I should be doing. So I think it's um, it's really worth having a look at this particular post because what she basically does is she goes through the draft and she has this little list of questions down the side, you know, what is known um, what is unknown still to be sort of like um, found out? 
what else do I need to like what what does the character know what does the characters change because of this particular incident she has the whole book divided up into sections color coded mm. highlighted and it allows her to see exactly where the gaps are like what stuff has she failed to actually let the reader know or what stuff has she actually told the reader that she doesn't want them to know until further on in the book um mm. and things like that and I think if you're struggling to organize a draft, which which you can, particularly when you're first starting out, and this whole notion of where exactly did I reveal that particular yes. point or have I actually forgotten to reveal that particular point, which means that this section at the back of the book is totally useless. Um, mm. You know, you need to it, – it, it sort of like puts the whole thing out in a chart. So it's called her What is Known chart and she has three rows down the side, What is Known to the Reader?, what is unknown to the reader and how has the character changed? And I think it allows you to see the, the sort of the narrative arc and also the character's um, arc. And I think that um, if you are struggling to organise yourself through an, the, the edit of a draft, it's mm. well worth having a look at this um, at this post and I will put it in the show notes. It's at natashalester.com.au and I'll pop the link in there so that you can see exactly like this is like a step-by-step. This is how Natasha does this and this is how she uses her chart. And, Mm. you know, even if you only take away, you know, you may think to yourself there is no way that I'm going to color code this thing and do whatever, Mm. which is, you know, kind of my first response. But that's that those three questions what is known to the reader, what is unknown to the reader at this point in the novel, and how has the character changed at this point in the novel? Very, very useful questions. Very useful. And I certainly think it would appeal to those kind of people who are really into neat lists and neat compilation Mm -hmm. and compartmentalising of things and fans of Marie Kondo. Uh, And also those people who, you know how, for example, I just write a to-do list pretty messily and you email yourself your to-do list the night before, right? But there are other people in the world who colour code their to-do lists, not only in terms of the type of activity, but also where the activity takes place. And also they um, have different symbols for whether the activity has started yet, whether the activity is in progress, whether the activity is completed or whether the activity has moved over to another page. So those people, um, and and I know one of our listeners is one of them, in fact her name might be, her name might be Ra, who will spend a hundred bucks or whatever on coloured pens and stuff so that they can have their beautiful to-do lists uh, you know, gorgeous and, and and as if they should belong on Pinterest, would probably find something like this very, very appealing indeed. Yes, think, it, yes, they would. They would definitely. And as Natasha points out, it allows her to see how the threads of her plots are coming together because she does write parallel narratives um, with, you know, historical fiction. And she's also, she talks about the fact that it allows her to see where the subplots are at at any given time. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, in The French Photographer, which is the book she's working on at the moment, she mm. she had the sense that she wasn't using her villain enough. And, you know, if you don't use your villain enough, then he's not the big bad that mm. he needs to be. Um, so, you know, she has been able to have a look at that on the chart and see that the subplot has unraveled slightly and that she needs to actually bump him up, um, you know, in, in certain parts of yes. the book. And yeah, I think so also anyway. what's important to mention here is that Natasha is actually a pantser. So Natasha doesn't plot out her entire thing before she starts writing. She no. actually starts writing and then it unfolds. So this chart is what she does after she's finished her draft and she goes back 
to mm. then analyze it, it helps her analyze whether what she's pantsed or mm. what she's written actually makes sense and where whether it's balanced in the right way and where the things yeah. are revealed in in a good order so it's for the pantsers out there i think that it's a really good tool it's a great tool it helps you to see where the you know whether your structure is actually mm. strong enough to hold your story up and that's i think the key to yeah. the, you know, to the, to what she's trying to do here is just to make sure, because when you do pants, like you do, you can get that overall structure, you know, quite well, if you've, if you've, you know, done enough practice, but yeah. that, you know, there's very, there's underpinnings, the foundations mm. of a subplot and things like that. It helps you to see those. Yeah. So I understand you have another link for us called I'm a teenager and I don't like young adult novels. Here's why. <laughs> Oh, this is such a great, this is such a great article. If you are reading or sorry, if you are writing YA fiction, Mm. then you need to read this. It's at the Huffington Post. Um, The author Mm. is Vivian Parkin DeRosa and she's a contributor. She's a teenage writer, poet and intern at Project Right Now. So, you know, she's, she's got some, she's backing it up with something. Um, But the lovely thing about it is it's just an absolute chapter and verse lesson in getting a teenager wrong. And I think mm. that if you if you have a look at this, and it's a, it's an interesting thing because some of the, the things that she points out in this, um, she's referencing without referencing um, some very large selling, you know, some very, very popular books. You know, she doesn't yes. actually ever mention names or anything, but it's not difficult to tell um, what she's actually talking about. Um, and she talks about the fact that, you know, you know, her biggest issue with teenagers in YA fiction, or many YA fiction novels, is that everyone listens to them. She says, yeah. this might be the biggest mistake that I see in YA fantasy, dystopian crime, and ah. even realistic novels. That, you know, that the 16-year-old the comes to the people with, with uh, power and says, my goodness me, you know, this has happened. And yeah. everybody goes, of course, we must run and check this out immediately. <laughs> and as she says... Here's the truth about being a teenager. No one actually listens to you ever. Adults think you're too old to be making mistakes and too young to take over their jobs. No one would just hand power over to a 16-year-old, no matter how cool their prophecy or magical birthmark is. (laughs) Wow. It's actually very well written. It made me laugh. Um, And then she talks about the fact that many YA books, you know, the, the teen, the main characters are actually acting like 20 year olds you know they're yes they read like they're in college they they don't talk to their families they smoke they go on crazy road trips you know whereas most 16 year olds are not actually able to go on crazy road trips yeah and it's It's also the same with um television isn't it like uh where you've got teen shows like dawson's creek or or 90210 or the uh gossip girl or whatever i remember yeah. um meeting some americans like you know 18 year old americans who'd come over an exchange or something and they were just saying saying yeah we don't talk like that that's not normal <laughs> that's my uh, my effort at an american is that seriously is that the best you can do <laughs> Note to self, do not allow Valerie to speak with American accent ever again. 
Um, so yes, it's 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 not reality, is it? Because a lot of teenagers that we meet, you're lucky you're lucky to get a couple of syllables out of them. Yeah, so true. But that would make for a boring book. It would. Well, and and she points that out. She's like, look, you know, I know we're writing fiction here, but you know, if you're going to write it, you have to. It's got to have some, you know, basis in. Hmm. Your, your audience has to be able to relate to it on some level. And she says, oh, the other point she says, is this a cloud palace on top of Mount Olympus? Because everyone here is as beautiful as the gods and goddesses. And she, <laughs> she's very funny. I'm surrounded by teenagers five days of the week of, um, of over 75% of the year. I spent a lot of time looking at them. And let me say, I have beautiful friends. And, of course, everyone is beautiful in their own way. But YA fiction only gives us one type of beauty. Being a teenager is sort of awkward. And on so many levels it is, you know, whereas she says that, you know, everybody's got hair like Gigi Hadid and looks amazing yes. at all times, you know. Um, but I but don't know I what she's reading because there are there is YA fiction that doesn't do all I that. I think there she's talking YA about some of the big YA. You know. I think she's, uh, yeah, I think she's talking about some of the big YA. But here's, yeah. I think this is a really important point that I would like to bring up because she mentions slang. And yeah. I think it's something that, um, a lot of YA authors, particularly, you know, newer YA authors get horribly wrong because they think yeah. that they have to use the slang to make it sound like, you know, like we're down with the kids. Yeah. And yeah. you don't want to be down with the kids because the fact of the matter is the kids moved on three weeks ago. So yes. whatever, it is that you're, whatever it is that you're putting in as being cutting-edge slang is going to be so 2017 by about August. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's kind of, um, you know, she, she says – slang is just so, you know, dates your novel horribly. Mm. And as she points out, most teenagers don't use that kind of slang in everyday language. Like they're not going, OMG, do you all literally mean that slinging around dark slang isn't all fleek? They're not saying that. They, did you like it? No, I thought you um, they're, they're basically, they're using a lot of that stuff like lol and stuff. They're using it for text messages. They're not saying it unless they're some kind of, you know, sarcastic comment. But, mm. um, yeah, so you've kind of got to think about that. But, look, honestly, read this just for fun because I think yes. it's a really well, you know, really well-constructed um, post and, you know, very – I just want to smile my way through the whole thing. But if you are an aspiring YA author, read it to, to – to, and just take note of things that, you know, you might be getting wrong. I think it's really worth having a read. Absolutely. And we'll put the link in the show notes, which, of course, you can find at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. Now, I also want to give a shout-out to Shankari Chandran, who has mm. a book out and um, uh, is um, – who has done one of our courses and has just released a book, um, a crime and thriller book called The Barrier. Very, very exciting. And it's being published by Pan Macmillan and has just, literally just, been released. And Shankari did the um, crime and thriller course and and said, uh, and of course that is with L.A. Larkin, who mm. is one of our awesome um, crime and thriller presenters and writes a whole range of crime and thriller books. And she said, so Shankari says, L.A. Larkin was direct, insightful and absolutely right. At the time of the course, it was almost hard to hear. 
day and you know Shane Carey's very yeah. honest here she says day one was brutal in the lessons she was delivering about genre writing that night I went home read everything she suggested looked at every book and film she recommended and the next day I came back really open to learn day two moved my manuscript forward liked years we did some oh. magic pen writing and reading aloud in a safe and supporting but still analytical environment after the course I went home and began a long and important rewrite I used her notes as a guide and a set of tools two months later I had a manuscript that was different and its quality was at a completely different level and I guess the proof is in the pudding because it is now published the barrier is now published by Pan McMillan that's so very, fantastic. Very exciting. Yes, very fantastic. So I'm thrilled for Shankari and I just wanted to give a shout out to her because the book is um it's 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 on the shelves right now. And a shout out to LA Larkin for such awesome yes. advice. Absolutely. We should clearly all go and do that course. <laughs> <laughs> Signing now, up immediately. I, I also had a um, link from The Right Practice and it's about uh, the creative gap, what is known as the creative gap. And I thought that this was really interesting because I think that whether you're doing writing or any other kind of creative project or some kind of new interest or skill or whatever, there's this thing called the creative gap, which uh, was coined by Ira Glass, of course, from, you know, um, This American Life. And uh, he describes it thus, and we'll put the link in the show notes, as I mentioned, uh, but he describes it thus in a video. All of us who do creative work, we get into it because we have good taste. But there is a gap. For the first couple of years, you make stuff. It's just not that good. It's trying to be good. It has potential, but it's not. But your taste, the thing that got you into the game, is still killer. And your taste is why your work disappoints you. Now, this is the important part. Mm. A lot of people never get past this phase. They quit. Most people I know who do interesting creative work went through years of this. We know our work doesn't have this special thing that we want it to have. We all go through this. So basically what he's saying is that if you're starting out, you're going to be in this phase, but you have to know that it's normal and Mm. it's going to take a while and it's normal to take a while and you've got to fight your way through it because it's not going to happen overnight. And I think it's so true because you see so many people start stuff whatever that stuff is. My cousin's wife was telling me about how, uh, you know, he start, he gets a new interest in, he buys everything, whether it's woodwork or this or that. And then because he doesn't become great at it, he then casts it aside and goes on to the next thing that he he hopes that he's going to be instantly good at. Mm. And uh, and the thing is, you just got to stick through it. And I think there's a lot, there are a lot of writers who feel like they're, they're just not good enough. They're just in that phase. But they'll get better and better is the important thing to remember, I think. Yes. What's your advice to people who are in that phase and they're just thinking, oh, my God, A, am I any good? B, am I ever going to get any better? Well, I t- look, it's one of those situations where the, the – the- I mean, the most obvious and most general advice that you can give people in this particular instance is keep writing because yeah. at the end of the day – you know, it's it's only through like shoveling your way through words and words and words and words and words that you start to really understand what you're doing. It's, it's, it's like any craft. You have to learn the basics. You've got to learn all the tools. You have to learn how to use the tools. You have to, you know, it's you don't construct a house on the first day that you kind of pick up a screwdriver. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's that kind of, it, it's, it's that. But, but I would also add a caveat to that, and that is that, 
you have to you have to get guidance and feedback along the way. Like you have to actually go, you have to invest in yourself a little bit. You need to go and do some courses or you need to join a group or you need to, you need to do something because otherwise you just keep writing the same sucky words over and over and over again and not understand why you're not getting any better. You can write, you just keep churning out 120,000 word manuscripts, never realizing that they need to be 80 um, because you don't understand that you need to edit, that the structure's not right, that you, that you've gone, you know, you've got two books in one or whatever it is that you're doing. So you do need to get feedback and advice. You can't just, you know, exist in a bubble. Um, and I know a lot of newer writers would like to exist in a bubble because if you're in the bubble, then you're not going to cry because no <laughs> one's going to take – well, you know, and it's it's hard because you, you're you there with your, with your, you know, work of genius and you don't – like while no one you, – you know it's maybe not as brilliant as you would like it to be, but you still have this you know, little spark in the back of your head that says – well, maybe it's just like maybe it's genius, and I'm just you know being too modest or something. You know, yes. maybe, maybe. So you have to actually find that out. You've got to find out yeah. if it is a genius work or if it's actually probably just what most of us have, which is something that could be genius but needs you know fifty thousand redrafts to get there. So yeah. I think you know you have to step outside the bubble. And if you're sitting there with your manuscript and you've been working and working and working on it, and you you're not sure if it's quite right, and you still haven't quite got there you have to take the next step. You've got to get some feedback. You've got to take your thing to a course or you have to, you've got to get some idea of what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong so that you can do the right stuff better and not do the wrong stuff at all. So that would be, so you have to keep writing, but you can't just, you can't just be in your bubble. You've actually, you've got to prepare yourself for the bruises that come mm. with, with, with learning the craft. And there are bruises and there is heartbreak and you will cry because everyone does. <laughs> no, they do. It's true. Yeah. They all do. Everyone does. So, you know, there are going to be tears of frustration and disappointment. Um, yes. But it's only through actually experiencing that and understand, and then taking on board what is taught, what is said to you. That's the next step. Um, you get that criticism and you have to basically be ready to, to actually think, well, maybe this person is right, as opposed to this person doesn't know what they're talking about. Um, so, yes. you know, yeah, so choose your guidance wisely, uh, but get some. Have you ever cried because of oh, your writing? Oh, God, yes. Really? Oh, my God. Uh, Valerie, the yeah no I have when 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 I went through um you know I had some troubles with that first adult manuscript that I wrote yes yes um when I received word that after eight billion you know redrafts and whatever um that it wasn't going to be published yes I cried because it I had put so much work into that and it was so upsetting to me that I and what I felt was failure because I felt like I hadn't got it right that's what it felt like I mean as has been explained to me ad nauseum since then by several million people in the industry (laughs) there was a whole lot of factors involved in that there were you know it's it was never really about the writing and always about the a whole range of other things as well, you know. So it's mm. – I, I mean, I'm not going to say that it wasn't about the writing because I look at that book now and I think, yeah, you know what, I'd probably do it totally differently mm. now if I did it again. Um, but, yeah, I cried. Oh, God, yeah, because it is mm-hmm. so personal. Yes. yes. You know, particularly after mm. that much work. It's devastating. And so, you know, when I say to you I understand your pain – as a as an aspiring author, I really I really understand your pain. I know yes. what it feels like. So I'm just saying, but I am saying to you that in hindsight, without those bruises and without those tears, I would not be producing the work that I'm producing now. 
Yeah. All right. Well, if you're writing and you don't necessarily want to write an entire novel, but you want to get practice, then uh-huh. I encourage, this is a good segue too, <laughs> I encourage you. Look at you go. You shouldn't have said that. I just thought you were professionally just taking us there. See, Dean's listening now because Dean from the Australian Writers' Centre really enjoys listening to our segues just to how we get ourselves from point A to point B. So he's probably now listening going, oh, she was on a winner and then she had to spoil it. That's anyway, right. That's right. Segway us. So, Let's do it. Convoluted segue. You should just dip your toe in the water then and enter our 25 word short story challenge, which Ooh. is open until the 30th of June. So give us your best 25 words or fewer. It doesn't have to be exactly 25 words. And you need to use the two words violin and victory. So that's oh, violin and two victory. Two words. Yes, and if you Ooh. enter this competition and and if you win, <laughs> you'll get access to our new, very exciting, very fantastic, and I know because I'm going through it at the moment and I'm loving every second, course mm-hmm. called Short Story Essentials. And mm-hmm. it's an awesome course that's going to take you, you will write a short story by the end for sure. You might write many, but you'll write at least one ideal for entering into competitions and stuff like that. It'll be a lot more than 25 words, mind you, <laughs> the, the, the short story that you'll ultimately write with this course. And you will, um, uh, because each sort of exercise builds on the one before so that you end up with your very own short story by the end. But plus you learn a whole heap about the art of writing, but or, but in particular the art of writing short, really good, effective, powerful short stories. So um, apart, apart from winning, we'll also publish our favourites on mm-hmm. our blog in, uh, in July or, you know, when the competition is over. So if you want to enter uh, 25 words or fewer using the words violin and victory, just go to writerscentre.com.au, 25 words, and that's the number 25. So writerscentre.com.au slash 25 words. But that is not the only competition we have, you know. What? No. We are on fire. We are on fire. We have a book giveaway uh, and this one closes the 3rd of July, but it's to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Can you believe it's been 20 20 years? Well, it's like, oh, gosh, it just feels like. It just makes me feel old. (laughs) I know, I know. I mean, I remember when they first came out. Anyway, uh, so we're giving away two book packs containing the essential companions to the Harry Potter series, Quidditch Through the Ages and The Tales of Beetle and Bard by J.K. Rowling, of course. Both are based on Harry's school textbooks and were written in aid of J.K. Rowling's charity Lumos. So this is a must-have for any Harry Potter fan. And, of course, if you want to have a chance to win that, go to writercentercomau slash win. That's writercentercomau slash win. Hey. 
This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Inside Publishing, gives you a peek inside the complex world of publishing. Created by author of more than 30 books, Pamela Freeman, who also writes as Pamela Hart, the course gives you a step-by-step guide on everything you need to know about the publishing process and how this should affect your writing, pitching and submissions. It's essential information if you want to navigate the publishing world and get the best chance for your book success. You'll learn about the copyright issues that will affect you, what territories you need to negotiate for, and how ebooks and audiobooks will impact your income. You'll also discover whether indie publishing or traditional publishing is better for your goals. With our on demand courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentercomau publishing. All right, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? Well, you know, everybody knows it's my favourite section of the segment in the entire podcast. Of course I'm ready. Have you used this word before? Okay, lubricious. I'll say it again, lubricious. That's L-U-B-R-I-C-I-O-U-S, lubricious. No, I've never used lubricious ever. Have you heard of it? No, I don't know. I don't think, I don't believe I have, Valerie. Why? It sounds Valerie, good though. A new word. It does. Yep. Do you, can you guess what it, you know, by the sound of it? Lubricious? Uh, it sounds like something to do with, I'm thinking lubrication. So I'm thinking drinking. I'm thinking maybe it's drunkenness or something <laughs> like that. No? Well, according to the book, <laughs> of course, there's, I would own this book, 500 words you should know. Mm, um, <laughs> lubricious is another word for lewd, lascivious, or indeed libidinous. Oh, although this is a more for, this is more formal than any of them. It's from the same Latin root word as lubricate and lubricant. So you were very uh, close. There you go. Yeah, but they weren't thinking drinking. <laughs> 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 with their implications of slipperiness and reducing fiction. <laughs> so there you go, lubricious. So you yep. might describe, you know, someone as lubricious perhaps or, um, yeah, you could probably describe someone as, as lubricious. But I have not used it myself either, but I think I'm going to try and work it into conversation sometime this week. Well, I see no reason not to. <laughs> All right, so who is our writer in residence this week, Al? Well, today we have a bit of a treat and it actually follows on quite nicely from our YA authors and what you should not write sort of uh, vibe Mm -hmm. because today we have Marisa Pintado and she is a publisher at Hardy Grant Egmont and was in fact, you know, behind the establishment of the Ampersand Prize, which is a massive prize for YA and now middle grade authors as well. Um, So we had a very good chat about children's and YA fiction and the kind of things that she's looking for and um, and about the Ampersand Prize, which opens very, very soon, just putting it out there for anyone who's got a manuscript. Um, so, yeah, so let's have a listen to Marisa because it, it was a great chat. We had a lovely time. We always have a lovely time. 
Marisa Pintado is the publisher of children's and YA fiction at Hardy Grant Egmont in Melbourne. In 2011, she launched the Ampersand Prize, which is Hardy Grant Egmont's annual search for YA and middle grade manuscripts from unpublished writers. And throughout her editorial career, she has worked closely with a variety of emerging, commercially successful and award-winning authors. Welcome to the program, Marisa. Thank you. So exciting to talk to you. All right. So let's start way back at the beginning. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you came to be in publishing in the first place. Yeah, sure. Um, So my background is basically only in editorial. You can come to being a publisher lots of different ways, through marketing, through publicity. Um, But I have worked in editorial for about the last decade, mostly in Melbourne, but with a short stint in London. And it's not 100% um, common for editors in Australian publishing to start out acquiring the way it is in the US. But I was always drawn to commissioning because I loved the process of working with writers to get as close as possible to their best manuscript. Um, And I was able, I was lucky enough to be working at Hardy Grant Egmont uh, while we were publishing the Zach Power and Go Girl series, which used lots of different writers, um, either writing under a pseudonym or writing under their own names, but working to a formula uh, to kind of practice my commissioning as a junior commissioning editor, um, which was really fantastic. So it allowed me to kind of hone my process of working with authors to get the very best out of them um, in an environment where we had reasonably formulaic um, stories to produce, but um, but uh, which... Um, which kind of gave authors the ability to be really creative within specific kind of constraints. Um, Yeah. So when you're working on a series like that, when you've got like a Zach Power or something, as you say, you have a whole range of different authors who are working, you know, to to essentially a a formula with set characters. Is there like a level of, um, because I'm just thinking about magazine writing. So when you write as Mm. as a freelance writer for a magazine, you've got to write, you know, obviously with your own voice, et cetera, but you also have to fit within the voice of the magazine, um, which is a skill in itself. So are your authors, you know, for a series like that, are they, you know, because you, you kind of want a consistency, don't you, of voice across a series like that as though it's, um, so when kids are reading it, it's not like, oh, wait a minute, this is not like the last Zach Power that I read. So how do you work with authors to kind of get that happening? Absolutely. I mean, that is really the key thing, is getting that consistency of voice. Um, And Zach Power is a good example because all of the writers wrote under a pseudonym, H.I. Larry, um, and there were very strict rules in that series because it was published at a time when, uh, you know, the industry was a bit obsessed with the idea of the reluctant reader. Mm. Um, And it was really a series that was um, targeting reluctant readers who wanted the excitement and high-octane adventure of a series like Alex Ryder but didn't necessarily have the reading ability. So we created lots of rules around that series to make it as accessible as possible to them and so that writers from anywhere, really, um, if they read a couple of Zach Powers, they would very quickly get a sense of the voice and the rules. And the rules are things like the manuscripts always have to be 7,000 words. There are 10 chapters. Every chapter, um, you know, Zach has a new gadget that he deploys in some fantastic and exciting but easy-to-read um, kind of way. Mm. Um, and so that I think as a, um, as an emerging kind of commissioning editor was really interesting because it meant I could kind of rely on the, uh, constraints of the series to sort of shepherd and guide my authors, but also kind of create a space for them to be as creative as possible. I mean, if you've ever read a Zach Power book or any of the Zach Power books, you'll know that he gets, 
knocked out at least once in every book um, because every story has to take place over 24 hours and it's really difficult to use up 24 hours in only 10 chapters. Um, but um, so, you know, and so our writers would actually get tremendously creative in those situations because you can't really use gadgets that have been used before. You can't be knocked unconscious in the same way you've been knocked unconscious before. Um, and so I think it was actually a really great experience for me as a publisher, but also for emerging writers kind of learning how to write to a brief and learning how to write to a particular voice. Did those, um, so some of those writers that you worked with on that series, and I'm really, I'm quite interested in this just simply for the fact that I, like, hmm. I must have read about 8 billion Zach Powers because I have two boys. Oh, bless. So we have done all of the various permutations of Zach easy readers all the way through the whole bit. Um it, it was, so you you worked with sort of newer newer authors on that on that series. Um, is yeah. it difficult then for them to go? Because I think one of the most difficult things, and you would probably agree with me on this, um, one of the most difficult things for emerging authors is just that ability to find your own voice and to find your mm. um, you know your way of telling a story and to create, I guess, a, a voice that it becomes identifiable to a group of readers who want to follow that voice. Um, did was was that then difficult for those emerging authors? Like if they were sort of like working to a very strict brief with, with the Zach Power series to then go, well, now I, I, I'm going to create my own work. Oh, how do I do that? Is that it, Was that difficult at all? That is such a good question. I suspect it's probably a question for the authors involved. Yeah, you're but right. Sorry. From my, <laughs> but, but, no, 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 that's okay. But um, I can have a stab at answering it then, uh, at, at, uh, answering it on their behalf. Um, I... I think, so we tended to work with unpublished authors yeah. um, for the Zach Power series. It was usually the first thing that we had worked with them on. And usually after one or two or three, or in the case of Chris Morphew, for example, um, 10 uh, books, <laughs> they, um, they would actually start to kind of chafe at the constraints of writing in the series and kind of be spurred on to writing their own thing, to write their own voice. Mm. I mean, the, the process of publishing the Zach Powers, it, it did involve a lot of very heavy editing. Um, and so in a way, there's a natural end to every writer's involvement with the Zach Power series. Because at a certain point, um, I thought, I think, they would get to a point where they would think, you know what, I'd really rather have ownership over my words mm. rather than rather than kind of submitting to a series that is owned by the publisher. Mm. Um, and not in a way, and not in a way that kind of meant there were hard feelings at, at any point, I don't think. I think it was a really enjoyable uh, and well-remunerated um, process for everybody involved. But I actually think in a way it kind of gave the writers involved the confidence that they could actually produce a manuscript, a full-length manuscript, and work with an editor and get a sense of the editorial process, but then also give them that itch to kind of find their own voice and their own space to write their own stories. And as it happens, um, nearly every single writer I've worked with on the Zach Power series, I've, I have gone on to publish or to contract to publish um, in the kind of years since. Um, and some of it is, you know, some of it happened immediately, and other writers I have only just contracted. Uh, for example, Matt Larkin, who wrote a Zach Power called Shock Music, which is one of my favourites. He uh, and I are working on his first debut novel, or first debut, his debut novel, which we'll publish next year, uh, called The Orchard Underground, which I'm really excited about. Um, and I don't think he would have written that book had he not written Zach Power. So it's a terrific, I mean, I can see it, you know, from my perspective, it's just a terrific opportunity mm. for emerging authors to, you know, make relationships with publishers. And how did you find yeah. them in the first place? Um, actually, it's, it's sort of a funny question because I think it was the thing that made me realise I could be a commissioning editor because you find writers everywhere. Um, uh. The Matt Locke and I met at a family barbecue. Um, 
he's not he's not a, he's not a member of my family. Um, actually, it was a family friends barbecue. Um, you know, he's just a, a lovely, intelligent man that I got talking to, and I realized this man has more than one story to tell. And actually, he's really smart and can tell a great story. And I wonder if he can write down those stories. Um, but in terms of kind of practically where I find writers um, for Zach Power, I would meet them at festivals, at conferences. People would just email me out of the blue. Often uh, Chris Morphew, uh, who went on to publish The Phoenix Files, um, which was a pretty successful middle grade series that we mm. put out a few years ago, he came to us through another writer, Rowan McCauley, who we had published under the Go Girl series, which had a similar structure to Zach Power, except the writers didn't write under a pseudonym. Uh, it was a, a series of about 30 books, um, and every book told the story of a real-life girl um, uh, and sort of in a similar format to Zach Power, except there were no gadgets in High Octane Adventure. It was much more about real-life stories and emotional trajectories hmm. um, and the kind of schoolyard politics of the day, which, again, at the time it was published, um, the market was pretty obsessed with fairies. It is still obsessed with fairies, but it was obsessed. there wasn't really much available for kids who liked real stories about real girls. So um, anyway, that's, that's what we were uh, working on Rowan with. She was writing a, a number of books for us as part of that series. And Chris... Uh, went to her church and she showed him a Zach Power one day. Yeah. And he said, I reckon I can do better than that, uh, which is, which is lovely. Um, and he sent us a manuscript and it was fantastic. He had instinctively got the rules that we were trying to kind of adhere to. Um, and actually working with him on that series was amazing because even though we had started out with a very kind of simple formula for Zach, you know, like I said, 7,000 words, 10 chapters, all of that, he, he actually saw a kind of mythology in the world that we hadn't anticipated mm. and it was subtle, but it was there. And he had sort of in the books that followed his first one with us, he managed to kind of weave in that mythology really subtly. Um, and it, actually it was with him that we published uh, the Zach Power Mega Missions, which was a four book spinoff yep. series. And then the Zach Power Extreme Missions, which was another um, spinoff series. Wow. Um, because he was just, he was so capable to sort of slip inside that world and see that it was bigger um, bigger than it looked. Well, I just think that's really fascinating. And, I, and thanks very much for talking to us about that because I know that's sort of all a bit mm. left field of what we were going to discuss. But I, um, I just mm. think that it's a really interesting insight and I think it's something that emerging, emerging authors probably overlook is that series fiction and the ability of, of, of that to actually, you know, perhaps open a door into publishing for you. So thanks for that. But I also know oh, that you, like you're obviously very interested in emerging and un unpublished authors because you did launch the Ampersand Prize in 2011, which is, of course, a competition for debut YA and middle grade novelists. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works and why you why did you establish it? Yeah, I'd be delighted to. Um, I will start out by saying that this year's Ampersand Prize is opening for submissions on the 10th of July, and it's running for um, uh, nearly three weeks. So we close submissions, I think, on the 28th of July. Mm. I hope that's right. Um, and we're accepting manuscripts from all debut novelists of middle grade and YA fiction, as you say. Um, but why did we launch it? Um, so we launched it in 2011 at a time when we were really looking to grow our YA list. We had been tremendously successful with publishing our junior fiction. Um, you know, Zach Power and Gogo were best-selling series. We were selling thousands of copies every week. And my, I loved working on children's fiction, but my homeland is YA and middle grade, and I really wanted to expand our list for older readers. Yeah. But it was a time when Twilight was huge, um, and we were really only receiving manuscripts 
for paranormal and dystopian uh, fiction. And it was honestly a bit frustrating because it wasn't the sort of fiction we wanted to publish. We sort of pride ourselves in looking for the gaps in the market, trying to publish what's not what's not currently there. Um, and it got to the point where I thought, if no one's going to send me these manuscripts, I have to ask for them. Like, I can't just sort of sit here waiting. You know, how, how can a writer working in Wagga, for example, know what a publisher in Melbourne is kind of desperately hoping for? Mm. Um, so we decided to make really visible in public our desires. And we, the first year of the Amsterdam Prize, we asked only for YA contemporary manuscripts. Um, and we had something like 250 submissions. We had expected maybe five. Wow. Um, and, yeah, we, we genuinely didn't know that we were going to get anybody sending us anything. So to get 250 manuscripts was just a dream. Um, and out of that bunch, we found Melissa Keel, whose manuscript was a complete surprise. Uh, Life in Outer Space was a this hilarious, warm, romantic comedy about a movie geek um, and the not quite manic pixie dream girl that he falls in love with. And we had thought, you know, we had thought we were looking for gritty, dark YA. And so this manuscript was just like a breath of fresh air uh, when it landed. Um, And so we thought, you know what, we are, it is right for us to ask for what we want, but we should also be ready to get the things that we don't know that we want. Mm. And so in the second year of the Ampersand Prize, we threw open the doors to all genres of YA, including fantasy and sci-fi and everything. Um, And in the years that have followed, we have since expanded it yet again to include middle grade fiction. So I think Mm. last year was the first year we we accepted middle grade fiction um, because there's a real real lack of middle grade publishing in Australia at the moment. We just don't seem to do it as well or as consistently as, um, you know, markets like the UK and the US do, Mm. Um, particularly the US, which I think has just nailed the middle grade market um, in a way that we can, that we are sort of aspiring to. so, yeah, I mean, it's been a pretty tremendously exciting ride. Every every year we run it, I am so amazed at the number and the quality of the manuscripts that people are working on by themselves, um, often, you know, without the support of writers' groups, often just kind of in their studies and around the, the edges of their, um, their days, you know, around full-time work and childcare and, you know, their daily lives. They manage to produce these really quite incredible manuscripts. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm proud of it as a prize because we, we really have something unique in Ampersand. It is a, a really special platform that allows us to launch the careers of these writers who might otherwise not get published or who otherwise might not make as big a splash as they deserve. Mm. Um, you know, the, the Flywheel, which was the second winner of the Ampersand Prize uh, by Erin Goff. She's a, a really bloody fantastic, sorry, uh, she's a fantastic <laughs> Sydney, Sydney-based writer. Um, and it was a... A novel, a contemporary novel with a gay protagonist. Um, and the, honestly, this has ended up being quite a diverse prize. We hadn't we hadn't set out with that intention, but I think because we are a fairly kind of modern young team, I guess, we're attuned to the issues uh, kind of or the imperative facing the publishing industry around publishing own voices and, and kind of the need for diversity in our publishing um, in a way that kind of goes beyond it just being a sort of marketing trend. Mm. Um and, you know, I mean, I think we, we loved the, fly, the flywheel as soon as it came in. We did have, I think, a, a, a short discussion early on about whether it was too similar to Life in Outer Space, just in terms of it being a funny contemporary novel. And I'm so glad that we had that conversation and then put our fears to rest because it has ended up being both quite a different book 
but also like a really special book and a book that I'm really proud of because its protagonist is gay and there's just no... There's very there are very few books available um, by Australian publishers at the moment. I'm sure it's going to change, but um, you know, available at the moment that have gay protagonists mm. and are written by gay authors. Mm. Um, I think I think that's really important. It's something we're looking to kind of keep expanding on. Um, well, it does yeah, seem to also the, the prices seem to also get bigger and bigger every year. Like I, I I mean I just sort of the the sort of hype around it and the size of the sort of splash it makes, particularly online, obviously because that's where I seem to spend my entire life. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. do you, are you receiving like how many submissions are you receiving for the prize? Like how many did you receive last year, for example? Oh yeah, um, it goes up and down every year, and I think that's because writers it takes a long time to write these manuscripts and. Um, you know, writers don't tend to submit the same manuscripts over and over again. They're working on something new and that might take a couple of years to kind of come together. Mm. It hovers between 150 to 300 mm. usually, mm. which is actually not that many, but it does it does kind of create a lot of work for the reading team. So basically the, the process for the Ampersand Prize is that I lead a small team inside Hardy Grant Egmont um, with um, the editors and a few sort of select colleagues from the sales and marketing team. Um, and we basically all read together. And over, for, you know, over about six or eight weeks, we read every single manuscript and we talk about them on a Friday. Uh, it used to be a Friday morning with coffee. These days it's more likely to be a Friday afternoon with a beer um, <laughs> because it's, it's such an enjoyable thing to do, to be like, to get excited about things. You know, last year's winner, Rhiannon Williams, um, She's written this fantastic middle grade fantasy that I'm so excited to publish next year. And that was that was a kind of a hit from the beginning, you know, like somebody was reading it on a Friday and kind of popped up their head and said, this is really good, you guys. And from there, it just kind of spread like wildfire. And mm. I mean, that's the thing that I love about Ampersand is just that it, we just get so excited when we find that special manuscript that we know we want to work really closely with the author on and that we really want to kind of get out there in big numbers and really kind of launch the career of this new person. Um, it's awesome. It's why we all got into publishing in the first place. So, um, and I think... Sorry, keep going. Sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think Heidi Grant Egmont is in a really unique position. I don't know that I don't know that a larger publisher could run the prize the way we do, and I don't know that a smaller publisher could do either. We're one of the, the few kind of mid-sized publishers in Australia, um, and I think that gives us a particular strength. It means that we are kind of agile and small enough to work really closely with these debut authors who do need, who do need, I think, a special level of attention because they're so new to the industry and they're new to the process. And we like to make sure they have all of the editorial support they need to get the very best possible chance at launch. Um, but we're also kind of big and successful enough with a lot of fantastic books under our belt, a lot of fantastic series that we're able to really convincingly launch their careers. Um, you know, like Melissa Keel is one of the best-selling Australian contemporary YA authors in this country, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a girl who's come from nowhere, a woman who's come from nowhere. Um, you know, she's an overnight sensation 10 years in the making, all of that sort of stuff. So how much of a manuscript are you reading before you decide whether it's worth pursuing? Like you're all sitting there with your beers, which I'm kind of sad that I'm not yeah. with you just quietly because it sounds like a really <laughs> great way to spend an afternoon. It's so fun. Yeah, um, yeah. I promise you we don't get drunk. There's only one beer <laughs> per person and some of us don't drink at all. So <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know like it sounds. gives you a whole new perspective on a, on a manuscript, doesn't it, yeah. when you've had a couple of beers? No, no. I, um, it's a lot of fun. How much do we read? Um, look, it really depends on the manuscript. I always aim to read a whole manuscript, even if I know halfway through that it's not for us, um, because I feel like 
if there's something in there that I can, you know, take and sort of take away to give to the author as, as feedback to kind of help them on their journey towards finding another publisher, then I will do that. But wow. the, the, the thing about being a kind of mid-sized publisher with a very specific publishing brief, you know, our, our brief in a nutshell at the, on the fiction, in the fiction team is to look for junior fiction series and middle grade and YA uh, that will sell to a mainstream commercial audience. Mm. Um, and so the thing about having such a specific brief is that you can often tell from the first kind of 50 or 100 pages whether something fits with that. If mm. we, you know, there are times during Ampersand where um, we will begin reading a manuscript and realise very quickly that, A, it is far too literary to appeal to an Australian YA audience, that it has it is too explicit, that there are sex scenes that, that we that are, you know, honestly read more like something you would you would think would be more appropriate for an adult audience. Mm. Um, or, you know, you can tell from, the, I think, the first 100 pages whether the author is, is really ready to engage with an editor, uh, whether the quality of the writing is there. And so in special cases, we won't read um, past 100 pages, mm -hmm. but we do really try to give the writer the benefit of the doubt. And often, you know, there are manuscripts that don't really find their voice until 50 pages in. Yeah. Um, but the other thing about writing for children is that you know kids are the harshest critics. Mm -hmm. um, they just won't keep reading if it doesn't appeal to them. And same with teenagers. Is the um, you know their bull bullcrap factor is is uh, sorry bullcrap reader is really strong. They mm -hmm. can tell straight away if something's not going to be for them. And so we feel like we've got kids on our side. We have a clear sense of what we're trying to publish. Um, and you know if in the first fifty or hundred pages the author is hasn't convinced us on those fronts then that, that's maybe when we stop reading. But as I said, we do try. <laughs> we do try to keep going, um, so, particularly if we're interested anyway, which can happen because we're all passionate readers. Yes, yes, yes. And that is the thing too. It's like, well, what's going to happen here? Is this going to like where – because as you say, like sometimes it does, particularly with a, a debut uh, manuscript, you know, it can sometimes take you 50 pages to, to get to where you actually probably should have started the book, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, you know, the, the number of times I've read a prologue and thought, oh, no, not another prologue. And sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes the manuscript actually does need a prologue. But mm. more often than not, I think the writer is writing into the story to find the beginning. Mm. Um, okay. And so sometimes you just have to, like, let them do that. So is the Ampersand Prize the best way for a new author to catch your eye? Or is there, like, also a normal submissions process for Hardy Grant? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, the answer is yes to both questions. So okay. for middle grade and YA, we, we tend to close submissions, um, around the time of, in the lead up to, and around the time of the ampersand prize, mm -hmm. because we want people to be funneling their manuscripts through that prize. Mm -hmm. Um, but for junior fiction series and picture books, we publish beautiful literary award-winning picture books under our imprint, Little Hair. Um, yes. There are submission guidelines on our website and we're pretty specific about what we're looking for because with junior fiction in particular, um, there are all kinds of things that we like to do to, um, to basically stand out in the market. So, for example, we only do series for junior fiction readers, which is kind of roughly ages four to eight. Mm -hmm. um, we don't do standalone chapter books for that readership for the simple reason that it's really difficult to get them to stand out on shelves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So did, mm. the normal submissions process, you have all the guidelines on your website. We had a question last mm -hmm. uh, a little while ago um, from some from a, a, a sort of like a potential picture book author, and mm. she was saying that um, you know often 
uh, publishers are closed for picture book submissions. And um, is that would that be the case with you guys? Do you sort of like do you close you do you close your books or close your doors for a while once you have a massive pile of manuscripts that you need to get through and then reopen them at another time? Or um, you know why why would uh, publishers close for picture book submissions? I guess is my question. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, the answer is yes, we do periodically close. We've actually just reopened our doors for picture book um, submissions. Mm-hmm. And I think I think the reason is really about managing volume. Uh, yeah. I mean, even when publishers are closed to submissions, we still get submitted all the time. Um, mm-hmm. People will still send us their projects or you'll meet interesting people at festivals or conferences and, you know, ask them to send you their manuscripts. So there are always ways around those submission guidelines if you are lucky or you have a contact or you're just kind of, bold I guess yeah um but yeah it, it's really about volume I mean you can't imagine how many picture book manuscripts get sent through the doors of little hair yeah. every year there's yeah. just there's so many and they're short but every you know the, the picture book publisher there Margreta Lamond, has the most incredible brain and it takes a huge amount of time and energy for her to basically birth a picture book to yeah. t- sort of take it from a manuscript to a final printed book it's a really like labor intensive time intensive cost intensive um process um and so she might only publish 15 to 20 picture books a year Mm. um but receive you know a thousand manuscripts that Mm. she has to work through um so i think that would be the reason why publishers sometimes close their doors just to kind of give the manuscripts that they already have a fair go in their inbox um to sort of make it to publication. I'm so glad you said that because that's pretty much what Val and I, Val and I said at the time mm. when we got asked the question, so I, I'm feeling much better. Um, okay, so where yeah. do you think most authors or you know aspiring authors go wrong with their submissions? Is it not reading the guidelines? Is that the first problem? Yeah, I was going to say that's the easy answer. Yeah. Um, it's just not knowing what we're about. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, if, if people are publishing kind of explicit sex scenes on the first page of their of their middle grade novel, I think it's pretty clear they haven't done the research. But usually, it's not as uh, straightforward as that. I think the, the sort of the the real answer is the lack of finesse um, and the lack of polish with a manuscript. Where um, you know, the number one reason we say no to something, uh, or the number one joint reason, um, is that the writing isn't good enough or the ideas aren't good enough. And you can have writing that's not polished enough, but the ideas are really good or the reverse. Um, And for us, we need both to be as kind of developed, fully developed as possible before we can even begin to think about falling in love with something. So how much, like how much work, like I I get what you're saying with that too, but how much work Mm. are you willing to actually do with you know, with a new author, with a debut author, like if if you really fall in love with the idea and you can see some promise mm. in the writing, will you work with that, or will you send it back and say you need to polish this and send it, you know, and try again? Like, what, what how much work yeah. will you do from the start? Um, I think it really depends on the manuscript, which is such a such a cheap way of answering that question. But <laughs> I, I will say, I know that I am definitely sitting on the fence with that one. I will say that you never really know at the beginning of the process as a publisher how much work a manuscript is going to take. You can think, you can start out thinking that it's simply a matter of tweaking this character there and you know finessing that plot line there. But but you just you never really know until you get going on the editorial relationship, particularly with emerging writers who haven't been through the editorial process before. Um, and even if they're, you know, they have an exceptional talent uh, for putting together sentences, you really don't know how they're going to engage with your feedback and um, put it into practice. So um, in terms of how much time we'll spend with somebody, I guess as long as it takes to get it right. 
Right. You know, the, the most recent YA winner of the Ampersand Prize, uh, Callie Black, whose novel In the Dark Spaces is publishing this August. It's a it's a real departure for the Ampersand Prize because it's a, a sci-fi thriller um, and it's so good. And the voice just hooked me from the first page. It's such a clear and spectacular voice that um, I knew the moment I read it that we had to publish it, um, which which always makes your job really easy as a judge of the Ampersand Prize, honestly, because... If you know it from the beginning, then, um, then that usually stands you in good stead. So Callie was completely up for the process of, um, of redrafting and redrafting until the manuscript was as good as it could possibly be. But, but honestly, I think if, we, if she and I had known at the beginning of the process that it was going to be rounds of, of really kind of intensive feedback, um, I'm not sure if we would have done that together, but I think that's the beautiful thing about that leap of faith with a new writer is that you think to yourself, I bet we can make this manuscript really fantastic if we work on it together. Um, and, and so you kind of do it. And, um, and yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was hard for Kelly for lots of different reasons. Uh, her house burned down in the middle of working on the final draft. Um, it's not, I know it's, um, she's had the most, the most awful year. Um, as well as working on this manuscript that was, um, you know, almost too clever for her by half. It was, the, you know, exactly um, uh, what you were saying before I was in about uh, literally writing your character into a hole um, oh, yes. and sort of figuring out how to get them out. It was it was the exact same thing. She had sort of created a world and a character, uh, you know, a cast really um, of characters that was so fantastic and so um, compelling and complex that, it took us a really long time to figure out how we were going to bring it all home. But, but we were willing to support her the whole way. And I'm really excited about that book. I think she's done just such a tremendous job on it. Fantastic. So do you, uh, like outside of the Ampersand Prize, because that's, that's obviously a slightly mm. different set of circumstances, but do you take a, an author's platform or profile into consideration when you're deciding whether to publish a book? We do to an extent. I think it's definitely a bonus for us if we can see that an author is promotable and able to talk to students and, um, you know, at writers' festivals, if they present well, then, of course, that's a bonus. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, having said that, we have also acquired manuscripts from authors who have zero online presence. So we're publishing a new series this August called The Witching Hours from a guy called Jack Henselite, who's a creative writing graduate, really smart, awesome guy. It's a horror series. I'm so excited about publishing it. And he... Doesn't, he didn't even have an Instagram before um, we signed him up. He didn't have a Twitter. He was hardly on Facebook. He didn't have a website. He had nothing. But the manuscript was so good that it didn't matter. We, um, we just really wanted to work with him. And, you know, as a result of our, um, as a, of our kind of working together, he's set up his Instagram. He's set up his Twitter. Uh, um, by the time the book launches, he will have that profile. Um, yeah. But for us, it's definitely something that we – we think we can work with authors on if we feel it's important for their profile. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's not. There are particular kinds of publishing where being on Twitter is actually not not as important as, as you'd think. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think what those books might be. But, okay. um, yeah. So, but you have worked. fiction, I guess. You have worked with him to actually get that, to get that going, you know, in the sense that. So yeah. That, yeah. Okay, cool. Oh, that's great. Yeah. In fact, the annoying thing is that his Instagram is better than, anyone's like he's sort of nailed it it's really good so maybe we should all have a team of publicists and and marketing managers kind of helping us shouldn't craft our online profiles i would love that yeah i think so all right so do you do you attend a lot of sort of conferences and festivals as a publisher because i know that that you know being um 
pitching to publishers at festivals and conferences can be a great way for people to, you know, break through as far as, you know, getting their manuscript published. So are you at a lot of those things or, you know, is your does your team attend? Uh, yeah. So I, um, I try to attend as many as I possibly can. Um, they do take up time um, because often I am going as a, a pitching publisher. So I will have kind of 10 or 15 or 20 meetings with, authors whose first 10 pages I've read and then we have a 15-minute meeting to talk about, you know, what's happening with their manuscript, where it could improve, what's really great about it. And, you know, I'm an introvert. So those those meetings and those kind of um, attendances, they take a lot of energy to recover from. But I also feel like they're really worth it because otherwise you don't get to meet the authors who, um, you know, the exact same authors that we are trying to reach from Ampersand, the authors who maybe aren't a part of the industry, who don't have an online profile, who are just working away on a manuscript that they think is pretty good, that they would have liked to read when they were a kid or a teenager. Um, those are the writers that I'm trying to connect with. And if it takes, you know, an introvert going to a festival um, and, and, um, and kind of making myself available to those writers, then I'm happy to do it. Um, absolutely wouldn't give them up for the world. And our team um, do occasionally go to those festivals as well. Um, we usually send one or two people um, or only get one or two people invited to things like the Children's and YA yeah. conference in Brisbane, for example. Um, that's an invite festival. But, um, but, yeah, we do go and we do enjoy them. And are they, are they, do you sort of have any advice, like if, if for authors who might see you at such events or attend pitching sessions? Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good. Good question. What advice would I give an author approaching? Don't I think not to be nervous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I'm I'm actually happy to be pitched, but I do I do feel like there are, I think there are authors and writers who whip themselves into such a frenzy of anxiety about talking to publishers that it kind of makes it really difficult to just have a normal conversation with them. Mm. Um, and so I would my advice to them would be that every Every editor, agent, publisher wants a writer to be as normal and lovely and, um, you know, as good, their best possible selves, basically. Yeah. Um, there's no reason to be nervous. We're just humans. Um, and, you know, we likely haven't had enough coffee, just like you. We likely didn't sleep so well the night before, just like you. Um, <laughs> we're often nervous about those conferences as well because you do, it is, it is quite exposing, I think, to be talking to you know, 40 people in a row um, and having to give them rapid fire feedback in a way that is hopefully useful and encouraging, but also honest. Mm. Um, so that takes, that, that can be quite kind of nerve wracking as well. So my advice to authors attending those festivals and conferences would be, don't be nervous. We want you to be good. Um, we're happy to listen. Um, and, and good luck. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think it's important yeah. for authors to remember that you're looking as much as you're looking for fantastic manuscripts, you're also looking for people that you can work with, aren't you? That relationship yeah, is important too, isn't it? Exactly. Normal people who are not going to <laughs> – normal people. Um, you know, I mean, I think that there is an argument to be made that writers are a special bunch and mm. that, you know, a certain amount of crazy comes with genius. I totally accept that and I love, I love a bit of crazy with my genius, to be honest, but – um, we do want someone who can have a conversation with us and can listen to us and can hear us when we give them feedback yeah. or push back against feedback that doesn't feel right to them. It's not a, it's not a kind of um, parent-child relationship. Mm. Um, it should ideally be a relationship of equals. Okay. Um, and that all starts with that initial conversation. If someone's kind of too anxious to even talk to you, um, it's sort of hard to see 
how you can turn that into a really fruitful author-editor relationship. Okay. All right. So what are you actually looking for right now? What are you, what are you mm. searching for? What is the manuscript of your dreams right now, just in case one of our listeners is sitting on it at home? <laughs> That's such a good question. Um, <laughs> Alison, so many good questions. Uh, what am I looking for? Okay, so at the moment I'm, I'm actually really hungry for YA. I, I feel like I'm not getting sent nearly enough YA, um, and so I'm really hoping that this year's Ampersand um, Prize has, is just jam-packed with fantastic YA manuscripts. I, I I still love contemporary. I feel like the trend for contemporary is waning a little bit. It's harder and harder to publish a good contemporary manuscript that's just good. These days we find that they really need a clear hook, something that helps them stand out, something that makes them special. Yeah. Um, but I'm also finding myself drawn to manuscripts that combine elements of genre for a mainstream audience. So YA horror, YA um uh, fantasy, um, particularly YA fantasy that's a little bit self-aware, a little bit self-deprecating, funny. I love humour. I think it's there's a real lack of humour in Australian YA publishing. I think we could all afford to kind of let loose a little. Mm. Um, and I also want books, both middle grade and YA, that are really fun. I feel like more, more, more now than ever before, we need books that are fun and mm. give us a kind of escape um, route, basically. Um, and so middle grade, that is that combines fun with, again, elements of genre. I am, we're pub- as I said, we're publishing a horror series in August called The Witching Hours with Jack Henselite this August. And I love it because it is so scary. And it has been the longest time since I read a truly scary but age-appropriate middle grade series. Um, and I've never published one before. So I'm excited to finally be getting to do that. Okay. Um, but, yeah. And I think um, I'm also looking for kind of meteor stories for younger readers as well. Um, we're finding this sort of strange trend in, in retail at the moment. I don't know if it's trickled into publishing as well, but at retail, uh, retailers seem to be looking for longer stories for younger readers. There's a, a real kind of link between the extent of a book, you know, the length of a book and the, the perceived value of it. So, um, so, you know, where before we might have said, you know, 7,000 words is the perfect length for a six- or seven-year-old kid. Now, the, you know, the average length might be more like fifteen or 20,000 words. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that applies to every single story, but it's an interesting idea, I think, that readers want more value, more bang for their buck. Okay. All right. So mm-hmm. we're going to finish up our lovely interview today with our usual last question, which is um, what are mm-hmm. your three top tips for aspiring authors? Emerging writers. Oh, <laughs> that is that is such a hard question. Well, the, um, the first tip would be enter the ampersand prize and actually <laughs> enter every every prize. Um, you know, the text prize is fantastic. Mm. Um, uh, you know, the Rochelle Prize. Uh, I think that's Hachette's prize for emerging writers. They're not children specific. That I think they're for adult. They might even only be for nonfiction, but. These awards are basically publishers opening their doors and saying, we want to find someone that we haven't worked with before and we really hope it's you. They want the manuscripts to be good. So that would be my number one tip. Mm-hmm. Uh, my number two tip would be to uh, really get to know the publishers that you want to be published by. Um, so, you know, follow them on Twitter. Take note of which books are coming out. Look for them in bookstores. Read their books. Find out what their tastes are like. Look in the acknowledgement pages. Find out who published the book. And see if you can build a really specific um, idea of the kind of person whose taste, you know, the kind of person in publishing whose taste might align with the manuscript you're trying to write. Mm. Um, because I think that is, that is the way, that is one good way to find the perfect home for your manuscript. 
Um, and also to save yourself a lot of heartache, sending manuscripts to publishers who just will never like it for personal reasons. Not because it's not good, but just because it doesn't fit with what they're trying to do. Um, and it's a great tip of advice. Yeah. Um, I do it as well. I do it with other publishers. I'm always looking to see what they're publishing so that I can get to know, you know, their taste um, and keep an eye on the authors they're acquiring. Um, it's useful for me as well to know what's going on elsewhere in the market. Mm. And I guess the third tip is probably the tip that everybody gives, which is that they need to read a lot mm. and read for the readership they're trying to publish for, but read outside of it as well. Don't restrict yourself to any one genre or category. Try to read as broadly as you can. Um, and try to read actively. Um, I, I, I divide my reading into two sort of styles. I have my work reading, which is a very active kind of reading where I'm paying close attention to every single word um, and every, you know, the flow and structure of every single sentence because I am, I'm interested in the technical aspects of how to make a, good, a book good, how to make a story good. But I do have another kind of reading, which is the, the flow reading, where you just kind of read to make pictures inside of your head and to be entertained and to go into new worlds. Um, I'm reading Terry Pratchett at the moment and that is my flow reading. Mm. Um, and it's, it's awesome. But so you can do both, but to try, you know, if you're reading widely and broadly, be aware that sometimes you need to do active reading to get the most out of it. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Marisa. That was no, uh, terrific. Thank you. Um, so much great advice in there for all of our listeners. Um, so, of course, Marisa Pintado is the publisher of Children's and YA Fiction at Hardy Grant Egmont. She is encouraging you all to enter the Ampersand Prize, which is the annual search for YA and middle grade manuscripts, which opens when again? It opened on the 10th of July. Okay, so any minute now. So dust off those um, middle grade and YA manuscripts and get them ready to send on in. And um, Marisa, good luck with all that reading. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to need it. <laughs> wow, okay. Marisa Pintado, always great to chat to a publisher, isn't it? Well, I just, you know, it's just such a gift really because, you know, mm. it, I mean, I think people tend to forget that publishers are just people. I think there's this kind of notion that they're these scary, you know, I don't know, dragons or something. Yeah. But in actual fact, they're just fabulous people and they love books and they are desperately looking for the right manuscripts, you know. So mm. it's not like they're like turning everyone away at the gate. It's like they're actually, they're actively seeking and going to conferences and, you know, running prizes and 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 looking for the right thing. And I thought one of the interesting comments, you know, what bits of the conversation we had was the fact that, you know, like if, if, if the if the potential is there in the manuscript, they are willing to work hard to to bring that manuscript up to publishable standards. So I, I think it's it's important to, to get your manuscript as good as you can possibly do it or write it. And then, you know, like it's 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 good to know, I think, that there's because there's always more work to do. And I'm, you know, again, I'm speaking from experience, there's always more work to do. It doesn't matter how yeah. great you think it is, there's going to be more work to do. And I think the fact that they are willing to work so closely and in such depth with, you know, with new authors is really, um, well, it should be reassuring. I hope it's reassuring. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's move on to a link that you have from The Right Life. 
Right. Yes, I do have a link from The Right Life. Now, this is called Get Inspired, 20 Writers to Follow on Twitter. And Ooh. the reason I am sharing this po- this particular post is because um, it is something that I am asked regularly is, oh, I don't know where to start on Twitter or I don't know where to start on Instagram or I don't know what to do when I get there. And, you know, we, we, we obviously cover this in the Build Your Author Platform course. But I think it's important to realize that one of the best ways to learn anything is to watch people who do it really well and to learn from them. And what this list of 20 writers to follow on Twitter gives us is 20 people who not only share great information, but who use Twitter really, really well. So it's worth having a look at not only what they're tweeting, but how they're tweeting what the, and the kinds of, you know, conversations they might be having. Um, and, and just to see what you, you know, what, if any of it, you can take away for yourself and use for yourself within your own sort of um, your own Twitter strategy or your own Instagram strategy. Instagram is another one you can look for. Um, look for authors yes. and writers on Instagram who are using it really well, and it's a great way to see what people are doing. So I'm just going to share this particular uh, post in the show notes. It covers mm. um, the 20 authors that we talk or writers that we're talking about here. Cover nonfiction, fiction, you know, mm. all sorts of different things. Um, and they range from you know Jane Friedman, F R I E D M A N, who is just an overwhelming resource for new writers the amount of stuff that she has on that amazing you know website of hers she tweets new stuff all the time I, I I really love it and her advice is so practical her posts are so practical so you know if you're looking for information about the publishing industry about about writing in general about all of those things you know her website is definitely one that you should go and have a look at um so there's her and then there's you know there's people like Joel Friedlander who is uh he is JF Bookman on Twitter. He's a nonfiction author, but he's also a book designer and he uh, specializes in self-publishing information. And his website, again, is a terrific um, resource, particularly for self, um, self-publishing uh, authors. Um, so the, the, a lot of the ones that they talk about here are people who tweet a lot of great information. Yeah. But they are also people who have become uh, personalities themselves within the uh, Twitter, particularly writing community, the online writing community, because they're so active and they're doing yes. so many different things. So it's it's really, really worth having a look at the kinds of things that they are doing. Now, I was a little bit disappointed because there are no Australian authors mm. on this, this particular list um, because, of course, you know, we'd love to, you know, see our own doing amazing things as well. Um, but I am – so I'm going to share this particular link in the show notes, but I am also sharing in the show notes a link to a post that we put together last year on the Australian Writer Centre blog, which is yep. 88 – fantastic Australian authors and writers to follow on Twitter. Twitter, And again, this is all about people who are not only, you know, terrific writers or authors or doing whatever they're doing. Some of them have massive following, some of them do not, but they are also people who use Twitter well. So if you are, you know, looking to build your own Twitter sort of following, have a look at what some of these people are doing and it will give you an opportunity to to sort of just learn a few, you know, strategies and techniques. And, you know, if you don't know what to say on Twitter, have a look at what other people are saying because it really is, is a great place to start. 
Absolutely. Now, I still thoroughly enjoy Twitter, but I'm keen to know your thoughts on this because I know that you re-embraced Instagram after kind of dissing it for a few years and then you came back to Instagram. I'm so What can I say? And you came back to Instagram and realised that you thoroughly enjoyed it. So I'm curious to know whether it's you're enjoying it more than Twitter or does it serve a different purpose to Twitter? How's it work, working out for you? Well, I would say that it's probably serving a different purpose to Twitter. Like I think they have, mm-hmm. I think they actually have quite, I think my audiences, my, you know, my, my, my team, my community over there, um, they're quite different on Twitter to what they are on um, on Instagram. And yep. I think that that's, that's one reason why, you know, once you get comfortable with one platform, it's a good idea to try and, you know, branch out into others because you do reach different people differently. People use social media differently. Um, Twitter has become, I think, over the last couple of years particularly, like when it first started out, it was very much a um, water cooler kind of vibe. Like it was the kind yeah. of place there's a lot of freelancers on Twitter who were just looking for someone to talk to, I think, um, yeah. which is pretty much what I was. And also a lot of parents, a lot of new parents, just yeah. like desperate for conversation. Um, so it used to be very much that when I first started out there, which was about eight years ago. Um, these days it's a different sort of uh, place and it's a very fast-moving place. And it's also become, of course, a place where um, – you know, it's it's been particularly for the last year or so. It's intensely political um, on Twitter these days, and you know, mm. it's you know, I don't I don't buy into that, but my Twitter feed is full of it, um, and I'm and I'm talking about you know politics from all over the world, um, and so it's a great place to pick up fast moving conversations. It's a place, great place to pick up information. There's a you know, information is shared widely across Twitter, and it's. Um, it's, it's new all the time because the Twitter feed moves so incredibly quickly. Um, but that's, it, that is a downside to it sometimes for an author now too, because the Twitter feed does move so quickly that, um, your, your tweets, which might've lasted, you know, which might've had sort of a life of, I don't know, even 20, 30 minutes a few years yeah. ago have now got a life of about, I don't know, four, if you're lucky. So, you know, you have to think about strategically using Twitter. If you've got a message Mm. that you want to get out there, you need to actually schedule that message to go out several times over a day. You can't just put it out once and expect that it's going to have any impact whatsoever. Um, Mm. So I would say that probably I get less traffic to my blog these days from Twitter. Most of the traffic to my blog now comes from Facebook because conversations hang around on Facebook a lot longer. Um, But Instagram, this was an interesting, I'll I'll give you a small case study. I shared shared this week, um, no, last week. Last week I shared a post on my blog which was about book dedications because I love book dedications. I am obsessed with book dedications. Okay. Um, you know, it's, it's just another one of those little things that I have going for me. Um, yes. So I'm obsessed with book dedications. And I, I shared a post which uh, included 10 of my favourite book dedications and also included the dedication for my next book, for the first book in the Adaban Cipher series, um, yes. The Book of Secrets. So, and I, the image that was attached to that post was the, uh, was the book of secrets, uh, dedication. So I shared that I put it in my newsletter, uh, when my newsletter came out. So it went out first to my newsletter subscribers. And then I put it up, you know, about, I don't know, five or six days later, I put it up on my blog as part of a post and it went sort of, I put it on Facebook 
um, where, you know, it, it, it got quite a bit of engagement and quite a bit of traffic came from it. Um, Twitter, I put it up on Twitter, like, you know, I, I've been sharing it randomly, you know, a couple of times a day, probably for the last, you know, five or six days. And, um, and you know, that was fine. I, you know, a few people said stuff. I put it up on Instagram and the conversation that started around the book dedication, because it was the image of the book dedication with a link to the blog post, but the conversation that started around that around that book dedication on Instagram was so much more involved than mm. it was on any other platform. And it was people who really, because it's the image is the focus. So yes. because the image is the focus, they were reading the book dedication and responding to those words. And, um, and it was really quite lovely because they very much liked the dedication that I put in that book. And um, I just sort of thought, well, I found that a very interesting exercise. And if you if you do have an author platform, if you are working towards it, it's really worth taking note of this kind of stuff. Like if you see mm-hmm. the way a post reacts is, is re- reacted to or responded to differently, think about mm-hmm. why this has happened and think about what you might want to do, you know, to kind of capitalise on that or to do that again another time. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's you need to be a little bit analytical about what you're doing. It's not just a, a matter of throwing stuff up and hoping for the best. You've kind of got to think a little bit about, well, that worked really well. Why did that work really well? And, you know, what yeah. what might I do that might be similar, not immediately, but maybe mm. in a week or two's time, be like, what can I do then? So it's, um, it's yeah, interesting, very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Audiences and respond of, differently. Yeah, definitely. It's very good to take note and see the one that is most effective for you, for you. because there That's is right. no blanket answer. What no. works for Alison might be completely different to what works for me, which will be completely different which for what works, you know, for another writer. So definitely you kind of need to try it out and then see which one either that you love doing and then you know that's a no-brainer, or the one that gets the most traction. And, of course, this and other fantastic platform-building tips on how to build your author platform are in Alison's fantastic course, which give you a blueprint on exactly how to build your author platform. And the key thing with that, and I can't emphasize this is enough, is to start as soon as possible. Even mm-hmm. if you ne- do not think, oh, I'll wait till my book is um, ready or about to be released, no, no, no. Start now. Yeah. And the authors who start now or who start well before their book is released or when where their you know book is a mere glimmer in their eye, they um they are the ones who have already built an effective author platform by the time it it actually really matters. That's so, right. Because it takes time. It really yeah. takes time to yeah. kind of and and to, for you to figure out what it is that you want to do with it. It takes time. So give yourself time. Because if you're trying to do it in a rush, it's you're just going to freak yourself out, basically. Oh, it's very stressful, and you'll get disheartened. So just mm-hmm. do it. Do it slowly. Build it slowly. Do it step by step. So to find out more about the course, go to writercenter.com.au/platform. That's writercenter.com.au slash platform. All right, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Al, what are you doing in the coming week? Uh, I'm preparing for the school holidays. Oh, yes. They come around very quickly. So regularly, don't you find? I find them very, very regular. That's what I keep saying. Surely you've only been back at school for a week and they're like, no, mum, it's been 10. (laughs) 
really <laughs> yes, astounding. It does. I don't I know. know how that happens. I don't either, <laughs> trust me. Anyway, so I, that's what I'm doing. I'm bracing myself and working very, very hard to get myself into a position where I've at least got vaguely on top of the to-do pile before I, yes. you know, before it all happens. And you, what are you doing this week, Val? What am I doing? Well, I am really excited about this upcoming course at Short Story Essentials and Mm. I'm basically putting the finishing touches on it. It is really good. It is one of the – I'm so – I'm one of – I'm, you know – uh, I'm so excited about it because it is packed with information and I know that people are going to get a result from it. Um, anyway, I know I probably say that about all our courses, but this mm. is... Because um, it's true. Yes, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the newest kid on the block and it's it's really cool. So I'll be, I'll be working a lot on that, to be honest. Okay, good. Yes. Uh, so where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You will find me on, where were we, Instagram and <laughs> Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. Um, and if you, you know, follow me on Instagram if you really want to see extra pictures of my gorgeous dog because that's where I mostly go with those. Mm-hmm. And you'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And if you're interested in finding out more about the Mapmaker Chronicles, there is actually a designated website site and you yes. can find everything you need to know or buy the books in the US or the UK or wherever at the mapmakerchronicles.com. Fantastic. You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O on Twitter and Instagram. And of course, feel free to connect with me on Facebook. Just search for Valerie Koo and I'm in the one in Sydney. Uh, and of course, you'll find the show notes, anything that we've discussed on the show, you'll get the links at so you want to be a writer In the meantime, thank you so much for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.